all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possession was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that is the price.' Peter said to her, "'How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? "'Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door.' And they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Thanks, Debbie. Morning, everyone. Quite a heavy passage. So here's a question to get us going. If you were, if you were the devil, so this is a hypothetical question, um, if you were the devil and you wanted to bring down this church, Trinity Church or Gate, or at least to, to stop us from being effective in our mission and our ministry, what would you do? Uh, perhaps try and sprinkle in a bit of false teaching, start a, a conflict about a, a minor issue, um, lead a pastor or a key leader into some sort of public sin maybe. In the passage that we've just read, what we have here is a group of believers. It's a a church that believes, lives by, and proclaims the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ's saving death and life-giving resurrection. It's a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, which loves God, loves each other, and loves everyone around them. And so it's no surprise, is it, that the devil is at work here. The book of Acts is all about the gospel message, this good news about Jesus going out to the ends of the earth. Uh, So the church has grown past the 5,000 mark we've seen in the last few weeks as people respond to this news in repentance and faith as they receive the Holy Spirit and as they come into fellowship together. And in the passage that we've just read, as, as Chris alluded to before Debbie read the passage, we see a contrast don't we, between the picture of what this gospel community is supposed to be and a scandalous incident with tragic consequences that highlights 
the severity of when the values of this gospel community are compromised. Uh, So firstly, in the final verses of chapter four, we see the gospel community. It's a picture similar to the one that you might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter two. And just like at the end of chapter two, what we're meant to clearly see is that this gospel community is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, we, we left off last week uh, at um, chapter 4, verse 31, with, with the disciples praying for boldness to speak about Jesus in spite of persecution. It was a prayer that was immediately answered, as we saw, as they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak the Word of God boldly. Likewise, the fellowship that's described here in verse 32 onwards, we should recognize this as the Spirit's work, bringing about the gospel community that God desires. This is important. That, so the, the gospel community then and now is entirely dependent on the work of the Spirit. What does this community look like? Well, it's characterized, verse 32, by unity. The believers were one in heart and one in mind. And this unity overflowed into generosity. Now, there were people who were constantly joining the church, 5,000 people in a, in a few weeks. This is a, a big inflow of people. Some of these people were rich, some of them would have been poor. And when it was clear that someone was in need, that need was met. People, we see here, would sell their property and they'd put the money from the sale at the apostles' feet to be distributed to those who were in need. And as we read on, it becomes clear that this Uh, that this was voluntary. It wasn't enforced. People weren't being made to do this. Uh, So to say in verse 32 that no one claims their possessions as their own, what that meant was that there was a shared attitude among the people, that people were more important than possessions. There was a, a common willingness to give away what is mine to meet the needs of another. Barnabas, we see, is used as an example of this. So he sells a field he owns, he gives the money, to the apostles to be given to whoever needs it. And Barnabas clearly has a good reputation in the church. Son of encouragement doesn't quite roll off the tongue in English, but it's a, it's a very complimentary nickname to be given. And as we, we read particularly through the middle chapters of Acts, what we see is that this generosity is very much in line with Barnabas's consistently good character. And so we've got this, this community of generosity, and the result, verse 34, is that there are no needy people among them. Because as needs arose, people voluntarily gave up what was theirs to meet that need. That was the culture. It was a a culture of recognizing the needs within the church family and giving of what they had to meet those needs. So what does that mean for us? Well, whatever difficulties there are in applying this passage to a a very different economic and social context today, the unavoidable conclusion is that this is radical generosity that God is calling his people to, and not just calling them to, but empowering them for by his Holy Spirit as well. Imagine if you've got a holiday house or an investment property. Imagine selling that property right now and dividing the money between a few families who are in need. It's radical generosity, isn't it, that we're seeing here? Perhaps you've seen or you've been on the giving or receiving end of generosity like this. Uh, There'll be opportunities that that come up in church family life from time to time that we have the opportunities to be generous in this way with what we have. I know just as an example, um, we have members who every time there's 
a children's camp or a youth camp on. They'll, they'll donate money and, and pay for a couple of tickets just to, to offset the cost for families who aren't able to make it along. It's a, it's a great way of being generous and blessing others with what they have. And there are opportunities not just here in a church family, but with our, our church family around the world. There are so many Christians who live in the midst of severe poverty and persecution. Um, their lives lack so many of the, the comforts and the necessities even uh, that many of us would take for granted. And these needs should be on our hearts that we would seek to give of what we have to alleviate them. So if you're a follower of Jesus, is that something that's on your heart? Wanting to give of what you have to meet the needs of brothers and sisters here and in other parts of the world. Is that something that's on your heart? Now, if I'm being honest, I think for me, it's, I find it really easy to fall into a bit of a, a transactional kind of mindset, uh, particularly about giving. Um, so Alicia and I give to Compassion. We sponsor a couple of children overseas whose families live in poverty. Um, we also give to Open Doors, which is a, an organisation that provides um, support for Christians who are suffering persecution for their faith around the world. What I find, though, is it, it can just get a bit automatic sometimes. So I, I work out how much money we can comfortably give, I set up a direct debit, and, and then I don't really think about it too much after that. Like I might sort of pray about it here and there, but it's not really on my mind and on my heart like it should be. A reflection that, that I've had from, from reading this passage is that I need to be more deeply invested in where that money is going. Make sure that I'm, I'm actually reading those emails that Compassion and Open Doors send out, that, that I'm finding out what's happening in the real lives of real brothers and sisters of mine around the world. Understanding their needs, praying for their needs, praying specifically for their needs. Trusting that as I do, God's spirit is going to be working in me. God's spirit is going to be showing me where I can be more generous in response to those needs, prompting me towards generosity. And ultimately, not just in response to the physical needs themselves, but in response to the gospel, knowing that Jesus has met my greatest need by paving the way for my sins to be forgiven. Uh, the needs in our church family and our church family here and our church family all around the world, these, these needs go beyond just money as well because we're all needy people in different ways. The, the wealthiest person in this room is still a needy person. And God equips us and uses us to, to minister, minister to and to care for each other, which is a great privilege of being part of God's family that he uses us to do that. Uh, it might be in the form of meals, providing meals during a difficult time. Uh, it might be prayer. It might be just time. So often time is the best gift and often one of the hardest gifts that we can give. Uh, how often does it happen that you're, you're talking with someone and, and they're, they're sh they share things about what's going on in their life that you just didn't know about before? And, it, and you realize there's just so much stuff going on in people's lives that we're just not aware of until they share it with us. What it means is that we have to be attentive to each other's needs and also to be open with sharing our own needs as well, to give our brothers and sisters the opportunity equally to be able to, to care for us and be generous to us. 
as well. So here we have it, a beautiful picture of spirit-empowered, generous unity within the church. But it's compromised, chapter 5. Satan is at work, and, and we would expect him to be at work. We would expect him to target a church that's proclaiming and living out the gospel. I wonder if, I, I, I don't mean necessarily our church specifically here, but just the, the church in general, I wonder if we, we not only forget or underestimate our dependence on the Holy Spirit to be at work in the church and we, we can rely on human cleverness instead, but, but also that we can forget just how badly Satan would love to bring us down. How intently he's looking for those opportunities to bring us down. Years later, after, after these incidents took place, Peter would write a letter, the book of 1 Peter, where he warned Christians that the devil prowls like a lion, looking for someone to devour, looking for someone that he can lead astray. And I wonder if this incident with Ananias and Sapphira was very much on his heart as he wrote those words. So like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some property. And like Barnabas, they, they get the money and they put it at the apostles' feet. But unlike what Barnabas and the others have done, they keep part of the money for themselves. They give some to the apostles, but they give part of the money for the sale for, for themselves. And it's clear that they're both in on this plan together. And it's clear that the intent is that they, they want to appear generous. They want to appear generous like the other disciples who are doing this. But they also want to keep part of the money for themselves as well. Kind of a, a similar thing happened at the church that I went to growing up, a similar sort of heart issue. Um, it was a very traditional church, and the start of each year, they, they had these special giving envelopes that, that people used to give their money. Most of the giving was done in, in offertory bags that got passed around. At the start of the year, they, they had a big sort of procession at the front of the church where they'd get all these boxes full of giving envelopes, and they'd get everyone to sort of come up, everyone who had pledged to give money to the church, that year, everyone would come up, they'd receive a, a box of envelopes, they'd shake hands with the minister, it was all very kind of formal. What would happen though, chatting to, to some of the, the guys that counted the money afterwards, they, they'd find that they were, they were going through the, the collection bags with all these envelopes that people had put in there, and they'd find empty envelopes in there. So people have, have taken these envelopes and, and they've put them in the collection bags on a Sunday with the appearance that they're, that they're giving money, but in reality, then they're not giving anything. So it's a similar, similar kind of heart issue. Um, so what's the issue here with Ananias and Sapphira? What's the issue? Well, I think there are two idols that have got hold of them. There's money and there's self-glory as well. They want the credit for selling the property. Perhaps they've, they've seen how good a reputation Barnabas has got, and they think, oh, I want to be called a son of encouragement as well. So they want the credit, but they don't actually want to give all the money. If money wasn't an idol for them, I take it that they probably wouldn't have kept any of it, and they certainly wouldn't have lied about it. And if self-glory wasn't an idol, then they wouldn't have sold the house in the first place if they didn't want to give the money away. They fell for the devil's lie that seeking their own glory was more important than seeking God's. As well as the lie that their wealth was more important than meeting the needs of others. And so this idolatry has produced both greed and hypocrisy, 
both things that Jesus had a lot to say about. It turned them into liars as well. Not just lying to, to people that they'd given all the money for the sale, but lying to the Spirit of God who was actively present and at work in the church. And God's judgment is swift and decisive in response. It's an uncomfortable passage, isn't it? We're, we're shocked, aren't we, a bit by God's excessive force that he uses here. Partly, partly, I think, because we can relate a bit to Ananias and Sapphira. We could see ourselves making a similar decision out of wrong motives in the moment. But it shows us, doesn't it, the seriousness of sin within the church. See, as the church, we are God's spirit-empowered people. We've been tasked with taking the gospel message to the world and living this gospel message out as we do that. And so we can't ever be comfortable with sin in the church. This tragic incident has parallels with a couple of key moments in Old Testament history as well. So Adam and Eve, a husband and wife who are led by Satan to disobey God and to take what isn't theirs. And they die as a result. Later on, there's a crucial moment for God's people in the book of Joshua as they enter the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. And a man named Achan disobeys God's command by taking plunder that was forbidden after a battle. And likewise, he dies as a result as well. Fast forward even more to yet another crucial moment for God's people, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, the new gospel community that forms. Again, it's a key point of time for God's people. And again, there's an act of defiance against God's command by someone within that community. And again, God's judgment is decisive. It's a powerful warning about the danger of disobedience within God's people. See, what would have happened if Ananias and Sapphira had got away with this, if, if God hadn't done anything about it? I take it that they would have just tried to push the boundary a little bit more next time, and other people would have been encouraged to do the same thing as well. They would have, everyone would have seen what they could get away with. Instead, what happens? Fear seizes the church. Fear seizes all who heard. Imagine being one of the young men who took the, body, the bodies away that day. You'd remember it pretty clearly, wouldn't you? The next time that you were, you were tempted to sort of push the boundary or, or to see what you could get away with or, or to lie or anything like that, you'd remember that day. You'd remember the Ananias' body hitting the ground. You'd remember the stern look on Peter's face. You'd remember Sapphira walking in afterwards not knowing what had happened. And you'd remember the fearful silence among everyone afterwards as they reflected on what had happened. You'd know that God is zealous for the integrity of his church. So thank God that we live under grace because we all sin. We all stuff up. We do things with wrong motives. But if our trust is in Jesus, his death has paid that price. 
the, the seriousness of sin that we see here in this passage also shows us the magnitude of God's grace that he's made a way for forgiveness through Jesus. But grace is never an excuse for sin. And so the question we ask is, how do we avoid this situation? How do we avoid it in our church? These two idols, this self-glory idol, which leads to hypocrisy, and this idol of money, which leads us to greed, how do we avoid it? Because the importance of personal image and material wealth, that's the air we breathe in our culture today. And so the devil is gonna try and use both of them against us constantly. It's so easy to fall into a material-centered life. I mean, how much, how much time do you spend thinking about what you could get or what you could do with your money? Uh, maybe a holiday, an outfit, a car, that, that sort of thing. And compare that with how much time you spend thinking about how you can advance God's kingdom and, and bless God's people with your money. It's really easy to think of ways or think of reasons not to be generous. Because there's always a next step to take with our money, isn't there? There's um, buying a car, if maybe a, a new car or a first car if you haven't bought one. Maybe buying a house, maybe it's buying a bigger house. There's our financial security to think about. There's our children's financial security to think about. Our hearts become spiritual battlegrounds because if you're a Christian, if, you, if you're someone who has put your trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of your sins and Jesus' resurrection as the, the way, the guarantee of life, if that's where you're at, God's spirit is working in you to make you more like Jesus. And that includes making you more generous. But at the same time, the devil is waving material things in front of us, trying to appeal to our desires, trying to lead us astray. We find ourselves in a similar situation to the rich young man who we, you would have seen if you were at the Mark drama last night or you'll see him if, if you're at the Mark drama tonight. The rich young man who was sad because Jesus told him to give everything that he had to the poor. Now, it's not that having money or, or using it to buy ourselves things is, is a bad thing at all. The issue goes to the heart. Is my money serving God's kingdom? Or my kingdom? That's the question. See, money is something that we can use wisely for God's glory and we can, we can do great things with it. But it can also be an idol that gets in the way of us being the generous, united gospel community that God calls us to be and that he equips us to be by his spirit. And so is self-glory. Self-glory is the same because we, we naturally want people to think well of us. It's not entirely a bad thing, but ultimately... Is it God's glory I'm seeking? Or is it my glory that I'm seeking? Who do I want to look good? Me or God? See, church can never be a platform for my agenda or my glory. And that's a big challenge for me right now, at this very second, up here. Am I trying to preach a sermon that makes me look like an amazingly good preacher? Or am I trying to preach a sermon that rightfully shows God to be the amazing God that he is and Jesus to be the amazing Lord that he is. And it's the same across the board in all the ministries that we have here. So with Basement, our youth group on a Friday night, for example, am I trying to, well, for me and for the other Basement leaders, are we trying to impress 
the youth group members with what impressive, awesome, and culturally up-to-date leaders we are? Or are we wanting to... Marty's having a laugh at that. He, he knows the answer. Or am I, am I wanting them to see what an awesome God we have and why that shapes every part of their lives? So the answer to that question matters, doesn't it? If you've got a child in high school, the answer to that question matters very much to you, doesn't it? The warning of Acts chapter 5 is that idols like money and self-glory can take us to really, really dangerous places. They can turn us into liars and hypocrites, and they can damage and undermine God's church. And so the solution is filling ourselves up on God through prayer, uh, through reflecting on his word, relying on his spirit to grow us in our love for him and our desire for his glory ahead of our own, for his kingdom purposes, purposes to come ahead of our material prosperity. And that love for God will overflow into love and generosity to the people around us. Giving will become more and more natural, more and more joyful. And we also have to take sin very seriously in our church. Now, I don't mean becoming legalistic and losing sight of grace. I don't mean becoming overly critical or judgmental against each other, because that's, that's another bad path to go down. We do have to accept each other as flawed but loved brothers and sisters in Christ, but not to turn a, bad, not to turn a blind eye to sin, particularly repeated and unrepentant sin. Because the devil loves it when sin is tolerated and when it's allowed to flourish within a church. Now, of course, that starts with taking my own sin seriously, not just looking, looking at other people, but taking my own sin seriously, or else I'm a hypocrite. But when it's needed, we must be able to gently, lovingly, humbly, prayerfully confront someone when the need arises not talk to everyone else about it and talk to everyone except the person. Confront that person about it. And on the flip side, we need to be open to correction as well. We need to be able to to humbly hear other people's confrontation of us. It's really hard to be rebuked. It's really hard to rebuke as well. I can think of times when I've seen behavior from, from people within the church, and, and I've, I've known at the back of my mind that I needed to say something at that time, but I've not. I've justified it. I've, I've said to myself, that's just who they are. Hating sin and living under grace, they're not contradictory things at all. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, because if we understand how incredible God's mercy is, if we understand just how amazing the gospel is, just how amazing the implications of the gospel are in our lives. We want to live all out for God's glory, won't we? The message of this passage is that unity, generosity, and integrity are crucial for the life and for the witness of God's church and for the glory of God. And God empowers us by his spirit to live this way. He doesn't just tell us to go off and do it in our own strength. He empowers us by his spirit to live this way, to be a gospel community that generously gives of what we have to bless those among us who are in need. The devil will target this. 
He'll try to make us compromise by seeking our own gain and seeking our own glory. And so we need to fix our eyes on God. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus to rejoice in the grace that he's given us, to be attentive to the leading of his spirit, to seek his glory ahead of our own and to seek the good of the brothers and sisters that he's given us. Let me pray for us. Loving Heavenly Father, we we give you great thanks for the privilege that it is to be your people, to be called into the gospel community that you've given to us, to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit, to live in the way that you've called us to. Uh, We pray as we reflect on uh, what is a, a severe warning in this passage, but also an encouraging picture as well. We, we ask that you would help us and empower us each day by your spirit to live as your generous people, to be generously giving of what we have to meet the needs of others. We pray for your protection for when we'll be tempted to do otherwise, for when we'll be tempted by material things or the the temptation of glory. Father, help us to have hearts that want to give of what we have for your glory in every way, Uh, that the needs of those in our church family and those in our church family around the world would be met for their good and for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.